Tonight we're moving into what many consider to be the last major section of Isaiah, which begins in Isaiah chapter 56 and runs through the end in chapter 66. And really the the main focus of these last 10 or 11 chapters is on the the future and the glorious new heavens and new earth, uh, the really the, the blessings that God has in store for his people. And what I want to do tonight is I want to take together chapter 56 and 57. Uh, chapter 56 is relatively short. And then chapter 57, I think they form a, a unit that works together. And uh, the ESV study Bible had a really good outline for this passage. And I'm going to be following their their major three-point outline. Some of the sub-points don't come from there, but the three major points come from the ESV study Bible tonight. And I thought they had a good job of just uh, making making it uh, very simple, clear, and breaking down the structure of this passage. And so tonight we're looking at chapter 56 and 57, the true people of God. And what we see in the first part of chapter 56 is the true people of God redefined. The true people of God redefined. And something that Isaiah is going to do in this passage is he is going to expand our outlook on who the true people of God are. For much of Israel's history, and you can even see this to a large degree in the days of the Pharisees in the time of Jesus, and then on into the days of the apostles with the apostle Paul, but there was a mindset among the Jewish people that if you were a descendant of Abraham, then you were God's chosen people. And the Gentiles were excluded from that. But Isaiah is going to open up their vision, and he's going to show them that the true people of God is much bigger than they can imagine. And it's not primarily defined by who your ancestor is. It's more defined by who loves the Lord and who seeks to do his will and and trusts him by faith. And so he's going to kind of redefine, broaden their vision of who the people of God are in this passage. And so in the first couple of verses, we see a blessed people who are waiting, a blessed people who are waiting on the Lord. In verse one, this is what the Lord says, maintain justice and do what is right for my salvation is close at hand and my righteousness will soon be revealed. And so this has a forward-looking mindset, a forward-looking outlook on it. And Isaiah is encouraging the people to, to do what is right, to live in the right way as they are waiting on the Lord to accomplish his purposes. And I think that's a helpful reminder for us, isn't it? Because the, the people of God, when Isaiah is writing this, the people of God are still waiting for the deliverance that God has promised them. They're still hoping and waiting for this return from exile that Isaiah has been talking about. And what he's encouraging them to do is to be the true people of God by living out their faith and their, their worship of the Lord in the way that they treat one another, maintain justice and do what is right. One of the, the criticisms of the prophets on the people of Israel, and you find this in many of the prophets, Hosea, Micah, Isaiah, Jeremiah, 
one of the main criticisms is that they were not treating one another fairly. They were not treating one another with justice. The powerful would oppress the weak. The rich would oppress the poor. And so the idea of righteousness and justice is all the way throughout the prophets. And essentially, he's wanting the people to live rightly as they wait for the Lord's deliverance, for his salvation. We're in that same context, really, from where we stand, because the New Testament writers describe us as Christians, as pilgrims and wanderers on the earth. We're exiles. Peter calls us exiles in 1 Peter. And so we're much like these people of Judah in Babylon today. We're living in a foreign world where this where we are now is not our ultimate citizenship. Our ultimate citizenship is in heaven. And so we're exiles waiting for the final deliverance of God. So this is a good encouragement for us too to do what is right. Not in an attempt to earn God's favor, but in working out the grace that he's shown to his people. Live rightly and do what is just for his salvation is coming. Verse two, he says, blessed is the one who does this, the person who holds it fast, who keeps the Sabbath without desecrating it and keeps their hands from doing any evil. Now, remember, this is written in the context of the old covenant, right? So this is written in the context of Israel. And so he mentions some of the specific commands of the old covenant, such as keeping the Sabbath, maintaining justice, doing what is right. But the overall thrust of the first couple of verses is be God's people, be who you're supposed to be, be what his word teaches you to be as you wait and as you uh, long for and hope for his rescue. And so a blessed people who are waiting on the Lord. And then in verses three through seven, we see this this broadening out of who the people of God are. A blessed people included, included in the people of God. In verse three, he says, let no foreigner who is bound to the Lord say, the Lord will surely exclude me from his people and let no eunuch complain. I am only a dry tree. In other words, Someone who may feel inferior to a full Jew or someone who is um, not just a servant, a someone who has been designated as a single person. That's what a eunuch is. Eunuch is could be someone who by birth could not marry and have children, or it could be someone who entered into a voluntary singleness for the sake of service to someone, to a family and, and servant. And so the idea is whether you're a foreigner, whether you're someone who may be regarded as an inferior status, maybe as a servant, don't think of yourself as inferior because God has included you. So even if you're a foreigner, even if you're not a Jew, if you're a Gentile, but you serve the living God, don't think of yourself as not being included. You are included in God's people. For this is what the Lord says to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose what pleases me and hold fast to my covenant. To them, I will give within my temple and its walls a memorial and a name better than sons and daughters. 
I will give them an everlasting name that will endure forever. So that's, whereas a eunuch might be tempted to think of himself as a, just a servant, someone inferior, the Lord says, if you are a, if you are my child, you're following in my ways and my covenant, I'm going to bless you over and above that which would be expected of a true son or daughter. You're going to receive all the blessings. And foreigners who bind themselves to the Lord to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord and to be his servants, all who keep the Sabbath without desecrating it, who hold fast to my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain and give them joy in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. So you can see the the principle of inclusion in that. And this really fits with the New Testament and the proclamation of the gospel, doesn't it? That in Christ and with the the coming of Christ and his death, burial and resurrection, now with the proclamation of the gospel, the great commission is now very openly and clearly to go out to the nations and proclaim and make disciples, right? This and, and Isaiah here 400 years, 500 years before Christ is saying This is God's plan that not just Jews, but also foreigners who come to follow the Lord and trust in him, they're going to be fully included. Just as much fully included as any of my other people are. And that's that's what this imagery is of of making sacrifices and coming into the house of prayer. In, In the Old Testament thinking of things, the Gentiles were excluded from some of the the activities of the inner courtyard. Of the, of the temple. And so this is portraying a picture of full inclusion of those who are foreigners who are brought into God's people. So it's inclusion. Jews and Gentiles alike, poor servants or full, full heirs, inheritance, they're all included. So a blessed people who are included. And then in verse eight, we see a blessed people gathering together a blessed people gathering. The sovereign Lord declares, he who gathers the exiles of Israel, I will gather still others to them besides those already gathered. So God says, I'm going to bring the exiles home. They're coming home to Judah. And then he says, I'm going to gather others still and expand the people of God. What does that involve? I think it probably involves what he was just talking about with foreigners, eunuchs, slaves. And to me, this fits very closely with what Jesus says in the Gospel of John when he says, I have other sheep who are not of this fold. I must go out and bring them in also. So there will be one shepherd, one fold. And what he was talking about is the Gentiles, wasn't he? So I've got the Jews in the fold and I have other sheep who are not of this fold. I'm going to go out and bring them in and they're going to unite into one sheepfold with one shepherd, with Jesus Christ being their great shepherd. I, I see that kind of explained here from the perspective of Isaiah, hundreds of years before Christ, that God has exiles he's going to bring home, but he has others that he's going to gather and include as well. So that. The first part of chapter 56 is the true people of God. 
and how they should live and, and kind of redefining what it means to be a part of the people of God, not just Jews, but Gentiles as well, brought fully into the fold of God. Now, in this next part of chapter 56, the focus is on those who are not following the ways of the Lord and their sin is exposed. So the false people of God exposed. And I I think what Isaiah is doing here is normally in the thinking of an Israelite person, there would be a line of separation, a line of distinction between Jew and Gentile, right? So that line, that barrier was between those who were sons of Abraham, those who weren't. But it's interesting in this passage because what Isaiah seems to be doing is shifting their mindset, their focus, so that the dividing line is not racial or ethnic, but it's whether or not you follow the Lord. So in the early part of the passage, he can say, foreigners who follow the Lord, they're in. Eunuchs who follow the Lord, they're in. But now he's going to address Jews sons of Abraham who don't walk in the ways of the covenant. Are they in or out? And I think he's going to show them here that, that the principle of inclusion is not who your ancestor was, but it's whether or not you are in covenant with the Lord. And that fits very well with the writings of Paul, especially in Romans, when he was talking about uh, someone who is a true Jew is not one who is one outwardly, who is born of Abraham, who has the circumcision of the flesh. No, a true Jew is one who is one inwardly, who has the circumcision of the heart. And I think that's what Isaiah is driving at here is the line of separation between who's God's people and not God's people is not Jew and Gentile. It's who's in the covenant and who's not in the covenant. Who's following the ways of the Lord, who's not following the ways of the Lord. Who fears God, who doesn't fear God. And so he's, he's changing that, that line of, of division. And so here the false people of God are exposed because of their sin. We see in verses 9 through 12 a description of the blind and the greedy. He describes the watchmen of Israel as being blind and of being self-interested, just seeking their own selfish gain. In verse 9 he says, Come, all you beasts of the field. Come and devour all you beasts of the forest. Israel's watchmen are blind. They all lack knowledge. They're all mute dogs. They cannot bark. They lie around and dream. They love to sleep. Uh, Just think about the imagery in verse 10. A watchman, right? Uh, What is a watchman supposed to do? Uh, His primary job is to guard. his, His job is to be on watch for potential dangers for the enemy. He might be standing on a wall, looking out off outside the wall to the distance to see if there's anything approaching. He might be uh, walking a perimeter. He might. So his job is to see, to watch, to be alert, and to what? To, to make a sound, right? To sound the alarm if there's any danger. But he says the watchman of Israel, who he probably has in mind the leadership of Israel, the false priests, the false prophets, the the kings who are idolatrous, these false watchmen of Israel, they're blind. It's not very good to have a blind watchman, is it? 
You can't see any dangers that are coming. And not only are they blind, but he then likens them to a mute dog, a dog that can't bark. We often use dogs as watchdogs, right? And one of the ways that they alert us to trouble is they bark. Well, what good is a watchdog who can't bark? That's the image here, is these watchmen of Israel, these leaders of Israel, they're not doing their job. They're blind watchmen and they're mute dogs that can't bark. They're not properly watching over the people of God. Instead, they're lazy. They lie around, they sleep. Verse 11 says they're dogs with mighty appetites. They never have enough. So there's that idea of self-indulgence. Of uh, He likens them to dogs, but now in a different way. Mute dogs who are no good for watching out for enemies. Now they're dogs who just go around eating everything they find because that's all they care about is just getting filled up. They're shepherds who lack understanding. They all turn to their own way. They seek their own gain. Come, each one cries, let me get wine. Let us drink our fill of beer and tomorrow will be like today or even far better. Basically, um, what he describes here are people who are hedonists, right? Hedonist. A, A hedonist is someone who only cares about pleasure. Mostly physical pleasure. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get whatever I desire. But they were failing to perform their responsibility as leaders, as guides, as examples to the people of Israel. So they were blind and greedy. And then in verses 1 and 2 of the next chapter, he describes people who were hostile. Instead of blessing others, they were hostile to others, and, and especially those who were seeking to do God's will. They were hostile to them. The righteous perish and no one takes it to heart. The devout are taken away and no one understands that the righteous are taken away to be spared from evil. Those who walk uprightly enter into peace. They find rest as they lie in death. So at the first part of verse one, you can see that that people that bad things are happening to righteous people and no one seems to care about it. There's that idea of lack of justice, lack of righteousness. But what the Lord says here through Isaiah is sometimes the Lord's means of delivering his people from hardship is to bring them home, right? To bring them home. We can see that in this passage. We also see it in Revelation where many of the people of God were being um, martyred under suffering, under intense persecution, and God would bring them home. And one day he would vindicate them. But you can see that there are people who are not taking the righteous into account. They don't care what's happening to them. And so they're hostile. And then the main criticism of these false people is their idolatry. And the next several verses lay out the charge that God has against them for their idolatry. Verse 3, But you come here. You children of a sorceress, you offspring of adulterers and prostitutes. Who are you mocking? At whom do you sneer and stick out your tongue? Are you not a brood of rebels, the offspring of liars? You burn with lust among the oaks and under every spreading tree. You sacrifice your children in the ravines and under the overhanging crags. 
You say, where's the idolatry? I don't see any mention of false gods. It's right here in verse 5. And by allusion, by metaphor, by figure of speech, all around it. You burn with lust among the oaks and under every spreading tree. Remember last week, I think it was last, last week, we were talking about the Asherah poles. The Asherah poles were these, uh, like sometimes they were carved into trees, actual trees. Sometimes they were just like wooden poles that they would set up that had carvings in them. And they became sacred objects of worship in these false Canaanite deities. And so when it, this reference to the oak trees, to the spreading tree, it's probably a reference to these quote unquote sacred or holy sites of the false gods. And what would often happen as a part of false Canaanite or even Babylonian worship is not only bowing down before an idol, offering a sacrifice before an idol, but oftentimes their, their religious rituals also invo involved prostitution. Actual immoral sexual acts that would take place at these shrines, at these places of worship. So that's what he's talking about back in verse 3 when he says, You children of a sorceress, you offspring of adulterers and prostitutes. And very often in the scriptures and the prophets, you find this connection between adultery and idolatry. Where if you're worshiping false gods, you're engaging in spiritual adultery, spiritual unfaithfulness. And interestingly enough, much of this false worship involved literal physical adultery and immorality, sexual immorality. And so he, he criticizes them for their lust and their false worship. And then he says, you sacrifice your children in the ravines and under the overhanging crags. This is child sacrifice. That was a part of some of these um, Canaanite pagan uh, worship systems. And to me, it's, it's somewhat striking that in... 21st century Western culture, America, Canada, Europe, the, the supposed more advanced societies, more intellectual and wise societies that essentially were acting no different than the ancient Canaanites. Right? I mean, now we may not have little statues, but the God of our culture is sexuality. And so there's one thing and there's one thing alone right now that you cannot cross the border on. And that is to say that homosexuality is wrong. In our culture right now, if you say that homosexuality is immoral and from the perspective of an almighty creator God, it is wrong. You are that, That's blasphemy to the secular religion the pagan religion of our day. And so the, the thing that is most sacrosanct, most holy, I put that in quotation marks, is sexual freedom. That is what is most holy in this current form of pagan worship. It's no different than the Canaanite uh, rituals that involve prostitution and immorality under trees and poles. And then... They sacrifice their children to these gods. 
And we're doing the same thing today, aren't we? We go to a doctor's clinic and we call it birth control, but it's really abortion and it's really murder and it's really sacrificing our children for the sake of self-indulgence and for convenience. And it also is a manifestation of our false worship in our culture. And so we think of ourselves as being very civilized and very advanced, and they would look back at the ancient Canaanites or the ancient Babylonians, and they would say, how primitive, and yet they're acting the exact same way, just without the little clay or stone statues. Exact same thing. Verse 6, the idols among the smooth stones of the ravines are your portion. Indeed, they are your lot. Yes, to them you have poured out drink offerings and offered grain offerings. In view of all this, should I relent? In other words, should God hold back his hand of chastening, his hand of punishment, because of what, all this idolatry that you are engaged in? You have made your bed on a high and lofty hill. There you went up to offer your sacrifices. Again, the, the linking together of false worship of sacrifices with a bed is intentional to show the, the immorality and the lust and the prostitution that went on with these false forms of worship. Behind your doors and your doorposts, you have put your pagan symbols. Forsaking me, you uncovered your bed. You climbed into it and opened it wide. You made a pact with those whose beds you love and you looked with lust on their naked bodies. That's pretty right out there in, in, our, in black and white, isn't it? You went to Molech with olive oil and increased your perfumes. You sent your ambassadors far away. You descended to the very realm of the dead. You wearied yourself by such going about, but you would not say it is hopeless. You found renewal of your strength, and so you did not faint. In other words, in all of their going back and forth and all of their sacrifices in all of their uh, paying obeisance to these gods, they never found it to be the emptiness and the vanity, the hopelessness that it really was. They never saw it for what it was, that it could never fulfill them. And they just, they kept picking themselves up and finding the energy to keep doing it again and again and again, even though they were getting nothing back from these dead, lifeless, false gods. Whom have you so dreaded and feared that you have not been true to me and have neither remembered me nor taken this to heart? Is it not because I have long been silent that you do not fear me? In other words, they, they lost the fear of the Lord and they wandered off to their own devices. I will expose your righteousness and your works and they will not benefit you. And here I think he means righteousness in an ironic sense, in the sense that there is none. Your, your lack of righteousness, your, uh, uh, I'm gonna, in other words, I'm going to show you your bank account, but what that really means is it's going to show that it's empty. You have no righteousness. You have no works. When you cry out for help, let your collection of idols save you. The wind will carry all, the, all of them off. A mere breath will blow them away. But whoever takes refuge in me will inherit the land and possess my holy mountain. And oftentimes in scripture, you see this joining together of this theme of idolatry and emptiness. 
idolatry and emptiness. In fact, sometimes the word that's found in Ecclesiastes, um, which is translated sometimes vanity, vanity of vanities, just emptiness. It's, it's a, it's a ethereal. It's like trying to catch the wind. There's just nothing there. That same word is sometimes used to describe the gods. They're just, they're nothingness. They're vain. They're empty. But whoever takes refuge in me, the one true living God, he will possess my holy mountain. Again, I think this is what Isaiah is doing. He's, he's redrawing the line, right? It's not about Jew Gentile. It's about who you worship. Who are you worshiping? Who are you trusting in? And so then he turns back to the true people of God. The true people of God. And they're invited and they're comforted in this passage. They're invited to the Lord's presence and his mercy. In verses 14 through 16, we see the promise of presence. That the Lord will be present among his people. He says in verse 14, and it will be said, build up. Build up, prepare the road, remove the obstacles out of the way of my people. And we've seen this before in in Isaiah, right? In reference to the exile, that that whenever he starts talking about make a smooth path, uh, take the obstacles, take the stones out of the way, he's talking about them coming home from Babylon. Make a straight road for my people to come home. For this is what the high and exalted one says. He who lives forever, whose name is holy. I live in a high and holy place, but also with the one who is contrite and lowly in spirit to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. That is, there's there's a lot of theology in that verse, isn't there? In that verse, we can see the concepts of both the transcendence of God and the imminence of God. What does that mean? The the transcendence of God means that God is so far high above everything else, it's beyond our comprehension and explanation. And that's what he says when he says, I live in a high and a holy place. So there's a sense in which God is infinite. He is immeasurable. He is everywhere. His, His ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. We saw last week. He is so far beyond our understanding And how can you make one place where God can dwell when he dwells in the whole universe? That's the idea of the transcendence of God. But then you also see his imminence, which means his nearness. That even though he is transcendent and always is transcendent, yet he is also imminent. He's also near with his people. He says, but he also lives with the one who is contrite and lowly to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. And this is is exactly how grace works, doesn't it? Grace doesn't work like whoever's worthy, whoever has the most, whoever's strongest, I'm going to affirm him. Grace works the opposite of that, doesn't it? Grace works by coming and finding the humble, the lowly, the poor, the broken, and lifting them up. Taking those who don't have anything and giving them what they don't have and what they don't deserve. That's how grace works. I will not accuse them forever, nor will I always be angry. For then they would faint away because of me, the very people that I have created. There is, in essence, in 14 through 16, a a call to 
repentance and a contrite heart. He's basically saying, I am the God who is near to people who are broken, who are lowly, who have a contrite spirit. So I'm not with the person who has the high and prideful look and the one who is in rebellion in, in trying to be his own autonomous self goes off and worships how he wants to worship. I'm not with that person. But I'm with the person who sees his brokenness and turns to me for help and cries out for mercy. I'm with that person. So we see a promise of presence, a promise of healing verses 17 through 19, that God will restore what has been broken. I was enraged by their sinful greed. I punished them and hid my face in anger, yet they kept on in their willful ways. God's talking about his dealings with his people, Israel. Through, through all these years of their sin, their idolatry, just read from the, the history of the Old Testament, right? going from Judges all the way through Chronicles. You can see the failings of the people of Israel and of Judah and and how God was so long-suffering and patient and merciful with them. Even when he brought chastening on them, they still kept on in obstinate and stubbornness against God. I have seen their ways, but I will heal them. I will guide them and restore comfort to Israel's mourners. And in that phrase, Israel's mourners, I think he's drawing our focus back to the broken and contrite spirit. So the ones who will have hope of restoration are not the ones who go on their own way in pride. The ones who have hope of restoration are the ones who are broken the ones who mourn. Like Jesus says in the Beatitudes, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. To them, I will restore comfort to them, creating praise on their lips. And isn't that what God does for us? I mean, this is gospel truth right here. God takes broken sinners and he heals them and he comforts them and he creates praise on their lips. That's who we are. We've been saved, rescued, healed. And we just want now to praise God because he has done this for us. So there's the promise of healing. And then the passage ends with the promise of peace in verses 19 through 21. Peace, peace to those far and near, says the Lord, and I will heal them. So God is announcing peace. There has been the chastening, punishing hand of God. There's been difficulty, there's been exile, but now God is announcing peace. And peace in a, in a Hebrew concept of it, of shalom, it is not just uh, the, the absence of hostility, like the end of a war. That's part of it. But what shalom means in a Hebrew concept is, is wholeness fullness, being all that God wants you to be, being all that you were meant to be. Peace and wholeness and fulfillment and joy, all of that is wrapped up in this concept of shalom. Peace, peace to those far and near. And you could see there 
an allusion to Jews and Gentiles, if you will. And I will heal them. But here's the final admonition. But the wicked are like the tossing sea, which cannot rest, whose waves cast up mire and mud. There is no peace, says my God, for the wicked. That kind of brings everything back into focus, doesn't it? That in this passage, these two chapters, 56 and 57, Isaiah is drawing a clear dividing line. But it's not between Jew and Gentile. It's between those who worship God and those who don't. So there is peace for those who worship the Lord and for those who are broken and contrite of spirit and find his comfort and healing. There's peace. There's wholeness for them. But for those who are wicked, obstinate, stubborn, going on their own way, worshiping their own gods, there's no peace for them. No peace for them. And that includes Jews. So who's the people of God and who's not the people of God is not about whether you're Jew or Gentile. It's about whether or not you worship the Lord and are broken and contrite before him. That's how you find peace. And that's gospel, isn't it? And that's gospel. And so our world, is the thing about it, is our world is looking for peace everywhere. And again, in, in this whole concept of wholeness and fulfillment and of purpose and of happiness and joy, our world is looking for it everywhere, but they're not finding it because the only place you can really find it is in your creator. Because he's the one who made us. And we were made to worship him and to glorify him. And so when we worship and glorify anything else, we're broken and we're not going to feel whole and right. As we worship and serve our creator, that's when we feel wholeness and fullness and shalom. But our world's looking for it in all the wrong places. And that's a good reminder to us, even as the children of God, isn't it? To not be led astray into idolatry and looking for fulfillment in the wrong places. That's why John, at the end of 1 John chapter 5, the very last thing he says is, my little children, keep yourselves from idols. You're not going to find salvation there. You're not going to find wholeness, peace there. Only in God will you find peace and wholeness.